We're in Colossians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, please open there and the scripture and the various scriptures will be on the overhead as well. There are printed outlines in your bulletin you can follow the message with as well as um, complete manuscripts and you can grab those if you want now or later at both exits. Remind you again about the books on the book table if you um, are looking for some good reading to cozy up by the fire and uh, all of that. There's some wonderful books. There's quite a few copies of Newton on the Christian Life, which, as I mentioned, is one of the best books I've ever read out there. And um, we're going through it right now in a class. And so there's copies of that out on the book table as well. The Apostle Paul writes, literally, who, referring to Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, or better, in him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In 1835, the great British preacher Charles Simeon, who was then in his 76th year, stood in his pulpit at the Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, And he cited from verse 18 of our text in the King James Version that in all things he might have the preeminence. And then he added, and he must have it, and he will have it, and he shall have it. And those impassioned words were repeated to Bishop Hanley Moole from memory, in 1868 by a man who had been there. He reported that as Simeon spoke those words, he actually rose up in height as as he um, his soul straightened out his body, I guess, to bear witness to the Redeemer's glory. But obviously, it was a powerful effect in that 33 years later, the man could still remember that sentence and the way that Simeon preached it. When we come to a text like the one we're in today, I wish I could preach like Charles Simeon, because this passage is really one of Paul's most profound and powerful descriptions of the person of Jesus Christ. One of the early church controversies that erupted involved a heretic by the name of Arius. You've probably heard his name. And Arius 
claimed, centered on this verse, he used the firstborn of all creation in verse 15 to argue that Jesus was higher than any other created being, but that he was the first of all created beings, and therefore he was not eternal God. Arius said there was a time in which he was not. Um, Modern followers of Arius, the Jehovah's Witnesses, do the same thing. And as you think about it, it's kind of ironic that they would, or the enemy would, take the very passage that Paul wrote to extol Jesus above all else and use it to try to pull him down. Now, as I stated in our first message on Colossians, we can't be really sure about the nature of the false teaching that was infiltrating this church, but it seemed to denigrate the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ to demote him, to pull him down. They may have been teaching that he is not fully God, but rather that he was the highest of a series of emanations uh, that proceeded out of God, between God and man. Uh, They certainly taught that he wasn't sufficient and he wasn't supreme over all for the Christian life. And so to counter that, and this is one of the greatest Christological texts in all of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul forcefully makes a very simple point, and that is that Christ is preeminent over all that is. He, in verses 15 to 17, makes the point that Christ is preeminent over his natural creation, the universe. Then in verses 18 through 20, he extols Christ as preeminent over his spiritual creation, the church, which is his body. Uh, To put Jesus as the first of the created beings, as Arius did, and uh, not as eternal God in human flesh, is really to undermine our salvation. Uh, Bishop Moule stated once, a Savior, not quite God, is a bridge broken at the farther end. In other words, he's got to be fully man and fully God to bridge the chasm between God and man. And... uh, The only proper place to put Jesus is that of supreme preeminence over all because he is the eternal Son of God who voluntarily took on human flesh to bear our sin on the cross. Now, while Paul is arguing against weak theology here, he's doing much more than that because, as Bishop Moule also said, uh, Paul is not only discoursing, still less discussing, He is worshiping. He's worshiping. And as I have often stated, uh, theology is not really a subject to debate. I know there are theological debates, but theology should result in doxology. Theology should result in worship. And if it's not doing that for us, we're missing the point of sound doctrine It is always to lead us to know God better, to know who He is, and therefore uh, to fall before Him as, as Paul does here. And so Paul 
is thinking about the majesty, the excellency, the, the glory of Christ, and he wants to draw us into worship as we do. And if we don't do that, we've missed the heart of this passage. And uh, part of the wonder, as Bishop Mool again reminds us, he says, the person of whom Paul spoke here had recently lived in a Galilean town and suffered a violent death outside the gates of Jerusalem. And the apostles who had spent time with Jesus when he walked those dusty roads of uh, the Holy Land over there, they wrote of his earthly life and teaching. And yet, as Mool says this, he says, yet in the same breath and without the slightest apparent strain or effort, they, when they speak of him, they deal with him as the Lord of heaven and earth, nay, in this passage, as the infinite cause and the adequate end of all finite existence. And so it is crucial that we think properly of Jesus Christ. Because if we pull him down from his majesty and his glory and his deity, then we'll be inclined not to obey him when we are tempted. And Martin Luther saw this very clearly. Luther wrote this, If anyone stands firm and right on this point, that Jesus Christ is true God and true man who died and rose again for us, all the other articles of the Christian faith will fall in place for him and firmly sustain him. So very true is Paul saying that Christ is the chief treasure, the basis, the foundation, and the sum total of all things in whom and under whom are all are gathered together. In him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. On the other hand, says Luther, I, I have noted that all errors, heresies, idolatries, offenses, abuses, and ungodliness in the church have originally arisen because this article or part of the Christian faith concerning Jesus Christ has been despised or lost. Clearly and rightly considered, all heresies militate against the precious article of Jesus Christ. Uh, so Paul shows us in the first place, in verses 15 to 17, that Christ is preeminent over his natural creation, the universe. He's preeminent over his natural creation, the universe. And in the first place, he's preeminent over it because he is the image of the invisible God, as he says there in verse 15. And Paul means by that, Jesus Christ makes the invisible God visible to us. The Greek word, the image there is icon. Uh, we transliterate that into English. But it was used of the image of Caesar on a coin. The average person in that day didn't know what Caesar looked like. But if they looked at that coin with Caesar's head on it, they could go, oh, that's what Caesar looks like. And um, although the word itself doesn't imply a perfect image, uh, the context here and many other scriptures do show us that that is the meaning. God, who is spirit, is not visible to our human eye. But as F.F. F. Bruce put it, in him, that is in Christ, the nature and being of God 
have been perfectly revealed. John put it this way in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then jumping down to verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, he said, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So Christ explains the Father to us by His life and His teaching. Jesus, you'll remember, told His disciples in John 14:9, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. Incredible statement. Hebrews 1.3 says of Christ, And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. And that means that there is no other way that a person can know God except through Jesus Christ. As you know, John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there are not many ways to God. There's one way, through Jesus Christ, properly known and understood. And so any teaching that makes Jesus less than God in human flesh is not the teaching of Jesus himself. He obviously claimed to be God. It's not the teaching of the Apostle Paul, as we see here and in many other texts. It's not the teaching of any of the other apostles as we have their writings in the New Testament. Christ alone is preeminent over the universe because he alone is the image of the invisible God. Then secondly, Paul shows that Christ is preeminent over the universe because he created it and he sustains it. He is the firstborn of all creation. And as I said, Arius and the Jehovah's Witnesses pounced on that uh, phrase to say, Jesus is the first of all created beings. If you ever have them come knocking on your door, uh, no doubt they will bring that verse up if you say you believe Jesus is God. Um, They're wrong for several reasons. First of all, Uh, Paul immediately explains what he means by the term. If you see verse 16, it begins with the word for. That's an explanatory word. So if you missed what verse 15 means, read verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, that first phrase, by him, as I mentioned when I read the text, should probably be in him, meaning that Christ is the sphere in whom all things were created. Uh, F.F. Bruce puts it, God's creation takes place in Christ and not apart from him. So all things are created in him, all things are created through him, uh, meaning he's the agent of creation, 
and all things were created for him because he uh, is the one for whom they were created for his pleasure and his glory. It's interesting, if you get a copy of the Jehovah's Witnesses New World Translation, which is a very, very bad and corrupt translation, they insert the word other in verse 16, um, where it says all things are created, um, for by him all things were created. They put, for by him all other things were created because they recognize very clearly if you say all things that exist were created by Christ and he is not himself created. So they put the word other in there and then again at the end of the verse um, they insert it again where it says um, all things, all other things have been created through him and for him. The, the catch is this. That word is not in the Greek text. There are no manuscripts with it. They invented it and put it in their text because they knew that that verse brings down their doctrine. And so they have to defend their false view. John 1.3 puts it this way. All things came into being through him. That's pretty clear, isn't it? All things came into being through him and apart from him, Nothing came into being that has come into being. So, even the fact Christ created all the invisible powers, as Paul says here, he's refuting the Colossian heretics who were into angel worship. He's saying, why do you worship the angels he created and not the creator of the angels? Uh, Jesus created all the angelic hosts. He created all things that have come into being. And so he is uncreated. So, in the immediate context, Paul means Jesus Christ has absolute priority over creation because he existed before creation. And that's stated plainly at the start of verse 17. He says he is before all things. That means priority of time. He exists before all things. He doesn't say he was before all things, as if somehow there's a point at which he came into being, he uses the present tense. He is continually before all things. It's the same as when Jesus, in John 8:58, made the claim, before Abraham was born, I am continuously in existence. And the Jews exactly got the point because they picked up stones to stone him. They realized He was claiming to be God. Another second reason that firstborn does not mean the first created being is simply the broader context of the New Testament. So you have the immediate context here where Paul explains, here's what I mean. And then you have the broader context of the New Testament. Uh, For example, in John 5.18, the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because, they said, He was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, if they had misunderstood Jesus and they accused him, you're making yourself out to be God. Jesus, as a good Jew, would have fallen down, torn his robe and said, God forbid. 
God forbid that I should ever make that claim to be equal to God because that would have been abhorrent to a Jew. Instead, you read the context in John 5, and if I had time, I would read you from verse 19 all the way to the end of the chapter. Jesus goes on and on and on, uh, making these fantastic claims that show he's equal with God. Let me read just one of them. John 5, 22 and 23. Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And here's why. So that all will honor the Son even as they uh, honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There is no creature, even the first creature, who could make such a bold claim. That is a claim to deity. On another occasion in John 10.33, the Jews said that they intended to stone Jesus. Here's why. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And again, Jesus does not say, oh, no, no, you misunderstood me. Uh, I am the first of all creation. No, he goes on and defends himself on those claims. On another occasion, when Jesus forgave the paralytic sins, the Pharisees were grumbling in Luke 5.21. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Precisely, that's the point. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus backs up his claim to forgive the man's sins by saying, take up your your mat and walk, and the man is instantly healed. And then, as we recently saw in John's gospel, as John reaches the climax of his gospel, presenting Jesus there as the Son of God, Thomas sees the risen Christ, he falls before him, and he proclaims, My Lord and my God. And again, Jesus does not rebuke him and say, Thomas, please, you're blaspheming. Uh, only God is God. He accepts Thomas's faith and commends it. And so you have the immediate context here that shows firstborn does not mean first created. You have the wider context of the New Testament. And then beyond that, you've got the meaning of the word firstborn in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the firstborn was the heir and the ruler over his brethren. And so it means first in rank over all. For example, in Psalm 89.27, God says of the Davidic king, the Messiah, I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. And so he's first in rank over all rulers, all authority. And so Jesus is supreme not only over all the kings who have ever reigned, but over all creation because he created it. So not only is Jesus supreme because he created all that is, but also he is preeminent because he sustains all that is. In verse 17, in him all things hold together. And that's a similar claim as Hebrews 1.3, which we read, which said that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And what it means is this. This is an incredible thought. If Jesus decided to let go, the entire universe would disintegrate. 
He is the cohesive force of all matter in the universe. Uh, Douglas Moo explains it this way. He says, what holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue. And in the context he's referring, he has just referred to Platonic and Stoic philosophy, but rather a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, the electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. And he goes on to explain that the Colossian heretics were probably telling people that they needed to find coherence by pursuing their teaching. And then Mu adds, Paul wants them to understand that things make sense only when Christ is kept at the center. Only when Christ is kept at the center. And so the point here is Christ is preeminent over his natural creation, the universe. Now, before we look at Paul's second main point, I just need to say this. The views of evolution that are so widely taught, including theistic evolution, which is making an attempt now to infiltrate the evangelical church, robs the Lord Jesus Christ of his preeminence. And, and it's serious, serious heresy. Uh, you know, I don't see how any thinking person can believe in evolution. I, I know that's a radical statement. But honestly, I'll take on, give me the highest PhD, and I'll say to him, give me your best evidence, and they don't have any. They'll point out things like change within species, but they have absolutely no evidence for change of one species into another. There's no intermediate fossils found. There, there's simply no evidence for it. Uh, I, I really believe that Paul was describing evolutionists to a T in Romans 1.22 when he said, professing to be wise, they became fools. That's really what it is. For example... You ever do as I've done? You've got a little gnats flying in front of you and you swat that bugger. And then you look at it. And that thing is just a speck. And yet it's designed to eat, to reproduce, to have a nervous system, to be able to fly. I challenge any scientist to build a gnat and give it life. They can't. They can't do that. And that's just a little tiny simple thing. And then go from there to your human body. And how complex it is and how it all interrelates and all the parts have to work together. As we who are getting old know, when that doesn't happen, you got problems. And then go from that to what they call the ecosystem, all the evolutionists. The balance in the ecosystem. Yeah, to have something balanced, you got to have all the parts there, don't you? So how could the... Uh, bugs have existed for millions of years and not just decimated all the plant life without the birds to eat the bugs. you got to have it all there to have the balance. And then go from that to the universe. And it's just incredible to say, Voila, it all happened by sheer chance plus time. Just chance. Nothing that complex happens by sheer chance. And yet, I have read evolutionists 
who seriously say elephants grew trunks because as the elephants got higher from the ground through evolution, they couldn't reach the ground and get their food, so then they grew trunks to reach their food. Let me read you a direct quote. This was in a Reader's Digest article about how the elephant got his trunk. And so the trunk was born, probably emerging from the upper lip and the nose. Now, I have to bend down to tie my shoes, you know, and I haven't grown any appendage that allows me to do it. i got to bend over and, and do that, <clears throat> even though that's very inconvenient. How in the world, seriously, did elephants decide to grow a trunk to reach the ground? That's ridiculous. I have another article in my file by, seriously, a couple of University of Chicago evolutionists say the 17-year cicada. This is a little bug. It goes underground for 17 years, and then it comes out. And you know why it does that? It's a, it's a complex, sophisticated strategy to avoid getting eliminated because one year, five years, ten years, that's all too common, so they pick 17 years. Seriously, that's what they're claiming. You know, did the Chiquitas have a conference and say, hey, guys, you know, let's figure this out. You know, I think maybe we should go 17. Yeah, all in favor say aye. Then how did they do it? It's just absurd. And so professing to be wise, these guys become fools. And the only reason for evolution is they want to dodge the creator because he is Lord. And they know if he is Lord, they're in trouble because they're sinners. So anyway, I get on a soapbox on that. It's just incredible. The, the, I don't mean to demean them, but the stupidity. It really is professing to be wise, they became fools. A second reason Christ is preeminent over his spiritual creation or is Christ, that Christ is preeminent, is he's over his spiritual creation, the church. And that's Paul's point in verses 18 to 20. And he makes three points here. First of all, he says Christ is preeminent as the head of his body, the church. Verse 18, he is also the head of his body, the church. Now, scholars debate how and when Paul came up with this idea of the church as the body and Christ as the head. I kind of think it may have been when Paul encountered the Lord on the Damascus Road. And Paul had been persecuting the church. And you remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. And Saul would have gone, I'm not persecuting you, Lord. I'm persecuting these Christians. And the Lord said, precisely, that's me. That's my body. And so Paul um, uh, taught that Jesus Christ is the head of his body, the church, and so he's the supreme authority over it, and the members of the body have to submit to the head as the sovereign. Many other ramifications of that, of course, the head and the body are inextricably joined, and so we are in Christ. We are joined to him as our Savior. Just as a body has many members with different functions, so also the body of Christ and yet it's one body, and so there is this diversity of gifts, and yet unity of the body. Um, and then, just as the body is dead, if it's separated from the head, 
so we must remain vitally in connection with Christ, our living head, and draw our life from him. So, first of all, Christ is preeminent as the head over his body. Then Paul goes on and says, Christ is preeminent as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Verse 18, middle of the verse, he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead so that he will come to have first place in everything. Uh, Christ as the beginning means that he originated the church. It wasn't the apostles who came up with this brilliant idea. Uh, Rather, Jesus Christ created it, just as he created the first man, Adam, in his image. So he created the second man, the new man, Christ and the church. And we'll see that in Colossians chapter 3. It's a corporate man in his image. And um, it is where Christ is all and in all, as Paul says in Colossians 3.11. And then Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And that points to his resurrection is the first of its kind. There are other resurrections in the Bible, but you know what? Those poor guys that got resurrected had to die a second time. (laughs) They all died. And someday they will get resurrection bodies. But Jesus alone has been raised with an indestructible resurrection body that's a type of of the bodies that we will receive when Jesus Christ returns again. And those new bodies will not be subject to aging, to disease, to death, and so on. The result of Christ being the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, Paul says, is so that he will come to have first place in everything. And so because Jesus died for our sins, because he has risen from the dead, Paul in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 proclaims, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul's arguing here Christ is preeminent as the head of his body, the church. He's preeminent as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then thirdly, Christ is preeminent as the only means of reconciling all things to God. <clears throat> There's a typo there in the notes. It should read Colossians 1, uh, 19 and 20. Right, Paul writes, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Just three things here to note. First of all, note that Christ is qualified to reconcile all things to himself because the fullness of deity dwells in him. Uh, Douglas Moo paraphrases that verse, God in all his fullness has chosen to dwell in Christ. Um, The word good pleasure points to God's eternal decree. And uh, the word fullness, Bishop Lightfoot, who's one of the um, top New Testament scholars of the 19th century, he has a 16-page excursus on that word fullness. But here's his bottom line. 
he says that both to Paul and to the Colossian heretics, the term conveyed the idea of the totality of the divine powers and attributes. Uh, the heretics claim to the Colossians, uh, your gospel that Epaphras preached, it doesn't give you fullness. We, we're, we're going to give you the fullness. We're going to add to that. And Paul counters here by saying you can't get any fuller than Christ. Because as he will go on to say in Colossians 2.9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Again, it's a claim to deity. The second point he makes here is that Christ then is able to reconcile all things to God because he made peace through the blood of his cross. Now some, we had a man coming here a while back, who they erroneously teach that this means that all people and even all the demons and Satan himself will eventually be saved. I don't know if you remember, he used to stand out here on the street corner on the front of the church handing out stuff trying to promote his false view of that. And I said to him, with all sincerity, I wish that were true because then I could call my daughter home from the mission field and I really miss her and I would love to have her here and there's no point in our church blowing all this money on missions if they're all going to be saved eventually anyway, is there? Uh, It's just contrary to many, many other scriptures. By the blood of his cross, Paul says, Christ made peace with his former enemies whom the Father had given him. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus also, as Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And so someday every knee will bow, but some of those will bow voluntarily. I hope that's all of us. Others will bow forcibly as they have to acknowledge Jesus as Lord before they are sent to the eternal fire. But uh, he is able to do that because of the cross. That's where his victory over Satan was obtained. And then the final point is that Christ reconciling all things to God, Paul says, includes both things on earth and things in heaven. Now some commentators who reject the idea that Uh, all the Satan and the demons will be saved, they say that there's some sense in which even the holy angels need to be reconciled to God. I, I don't think that makes sense. I think rather what Paul is referring to here is the new heavens and the new earth. As you know, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God subjected the creation to the curse and to futility. And Paul mentions that in Romans chapter 8. Christ's victory on the cross was the decisive turning point of history. It meant he has gained the victory. And while it's still being fought and battles are being won on the, on the mission field and so on, um, it's guaranteed that he wins because he was raised from the dead. And so when Christ returns in his final victory over Satan and over all sinners, He's going to restore both the earth and heaven to their original glory. And I think that's what Paul means when he says things on earth or things in heaven. So Paul wants every one of us to know this. Christ is preeminent over everything that is. He is preeminent. He is preeminent over his 
natural creation, the universe, and he's going to restore it someday. He is preeminent over his spiritual creation, the church. And every the purpose is that in himself, that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And so the question is this. Does he have first place in your life? Does he have first place in your thoughts? Does he have first place in every word that you speak, in everything you do, over how you use your time? Does he have first place over how you spend your money and use your finances for his glory? Does he have first place over your entertainment choices? Can you honor him by the movies you watch and the TV shows and other things that you do? Does he have first place in everything in your life? Charles Simeon again so forcefully put it, he must have it, he will have it, he shall have it. Let me pray. Dear Father, help us to see Jesus in all of his glory lifted up. Help us to recognize he truly is Lord of all that he would be Lord of everything in our lives. I pray, Lord, if any are here who have never bowed before Jesus as Savior and Lord, that you would use them to call upon his name, to trust him, to cry out to him for mercy and salvation, and then that all of us, Lord, would live every day of our lives to exalt your glory, your majesty through us as much as we are humanly able. I pray it in Jesus' name.